A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. To get us going, I'll hand over to these two. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sights? Clear enough, much money, Penny. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, the title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of film. And I look at development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all those bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love. Just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to cover on this podcast have more of a mainstream leaning to them than anything else. They're certainly films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is a celebration of cinema, of the fact that films are made no matter how difficult. And that's really what I want to salute. Without further ado or further preamble, I'm going to get on with the first of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode of Film Stories. I'm taking us back to 1996. Let me play you a little snippet of an iconic film trailer. She was sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. The man was a psycho, man. He's a mate. So what can you do? What are you two talking about? Football! What are you talking about? Shopping! What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. <laughs> Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. That, of course, was a clip from 1996's Train Spotting, directed by Danny Boyle, with a screenplay by John Hodge, adapted by the, from the book by Irvin Welsh, uh, starring Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, Kevin McKidd, Robert Carlyle, and Kelly MacDonald. And the story of this one goes to three creatives at its heart. Well, four really, if you count its leading man, Ewan McGregor. So we've got director Danny Boyle, we've got screenwriter John Hodge, we've got producer Andrew MacDonald. And they had broken through with some style with a low-budget thriller by the name of Shallow Grave. You may well be familiar with it. Shallow Grave was released very early in 1995 in the UK. And Boyle directed, Hodge wrote it, MacDonald produced, Ewan McGregor was one of the stars of it. 
And even ahead of its release, there was, I mean, incredible word of mouth on Shallow Grave that this was a real breakthrough movie. And this would be proven when it landed in cinemas. But we weren't even at that point at this stage. It was just the sheer word of mouth that was building up off the back of it. But go back a little bit further. And it was producer Andrew McDonnell who first read Irving Welsh's book, um, Train Spotting. And he read it at the end of 1993. And it's one of those books that cannot be filmed. In theory, a series of vignettes that doesn't necessarily play to a traditional film narrative structure. But McDonald was blown away. And as they explained to Entertainment Weekly in 1996, McDonald and Boyle, it was McDonald passed the book along to, uh, to John Hodge, to Dan. Boyle and quote they got high off the ink alone reading it raves Boyle was just an overwhelming experience you feel like you've been completely asleep for years and suddenly you woke up this landscape which is normally just full of these terrible victims was written with this ferocious imagination and drive for life even when the drugs were draining the life away and drugs were at the heart of train spotting a drug addiction at the heart of train spotting but as Boyle said this is what we thought he said that's what we got to get this has to be the most energetic film you've ever seen about something that ultimately ends up in purgatory or worse. Now, those early screenings of Shallow Grave had begun to take place towards the end of 1994, and it was in January 1995 the film was finally released. But by that stage, John Hodge was already working away on a script for Train Spotting because Boyle just saw it as the film that should be his next movie. They were keen to get moving, they were young filmmakers breaking through, they were desperate to get on with their next project. The problem being, the rights to Train Spotting were complex. As Irvin Welsh himself would reflect a vice in a, in a piece some 20 years after the release of the film, there was loads of interest in the screenwrites to Train Spotting. Everybody seemed to want to make a film of it. And he said, initially, I sold the rights to the wrong person. He said, back then, I was a bit of a naive gunslinger who'd sort of stumbled into this mad vortex of different people having an interest in what I was doing. And the rights had been sold by the publisher Minerva to the production company Noel Gay, best known at that stage for the TV show Red dwarf and as was explained in Empire magazine it's March 1996 issue Noel Gay wasn't doing anything with the rights but suddenly got interested and realized it might have something of worth when it learned of Danny Boyle's interest in making train spotting the next film and so Irvin Welsh knew that John Hodge was already working on a screenplay for the movie even though they hadn't secured the screen rights in fact he asked not to be involved with the screenplay he's given interviews where he said he fully respected what John Hodge was doing he knew this wasn't going to be an easy adaptation as well. And as I mean, going back to that vice piece, um, Welsh talks of the moment where MacDonald, Boyle and Hodge came into his sphere. He said, I finally got a screener from Danny of Shallow Grave, by which point I'd sold the rights to the other producer. And he, he said, I thought, oh, I can't read this, but buzzard, I've my handwriting's awful. I've clucked this up big time because that kind of energy and filmmaking with my characters would have been a perfect match. And Welsh would, uh, Welsh would admit, he said, I really had a sinking feeling that I'd ruined it. However, it wasn't quite ruined. That the, the trio, Boyle, Hodge and MacDonald, were confident that they could get somewhere with it. Perhaps it was the fact that they were new filmmakers, they were coming up against an obstacle and they just felt they were going to get over this obstacle. And so the adaptation was continuing. Hodge was working on it. And by January 1995, he'd written his first draft of the script. Now, at this point, Boyle and MacDonald were doing promotional work for the release of Shallow Grave, which duly opened in January 1995. 
1995 in UK cinemas and proved to be a breakout hit. And so the offers were coming in from Hollywood. What do you want to be your next film? That producers such as Scott Rudin were saying, I'll, I'll back whatever you want to make. But they knew this was their moment. If they were going to do train spotting, this was going to be their best chance to do so. And so it wasn't just Hollywood that was interested in working with them. Channel 4, which had part funded Shallow Grave through its film Forearm, well, that was, it was keen to come in and back the next feature as well. And in fact, in the case of train spotting, for the first time in its history, it was going to cover the full production cost of the movie. Now, that budget was going to be one and a half million pounds, a slight upgrade on Shallow Grey's million pounds, remarkably cheap for a film, but a lot for film four. Yet Channel 4's condition was understandable. It wasn't going to hand over the money until the rights were sorted. And so I've interviewed Danny Boyle before and he talks about his process for getting a film going. He's basically not to ask for permission. Get the machine, get the machinery working, get the wheels turning and just assume that it's happening. And there was a little bit of that ethos really took hold in the production of Trainspotting. And so it was by the end of March 1995 that finally they were able to clean up the rights issues. That deal was struck with Noel Gay where the company took a credit and a profit share. Channel 4 agreed to stump up that one and a half million pounds and the plan was to get this film shooting and shooting fast. And so it got to the point where by April 1995, casting already could get underway on train spotting, that pre-production could get underway now that Channel 4 had released the films to, uh, to, to enable it to do so. And so Ewan McGregor was firmly in line for the lead role of Renton in this one, that Danny Ball had passed him a copy of train spotting. McGregor was utterly beguiled by it, thought it, this is exactly the kind of project he wanted to get involved with. The problem was he looked not think like what Renton needed to look like and so he would just throw himself into the preparation for this he would lose an awful lot of weight he would shave his head at one point he would consider injecting drugs which he'd not done in his life um, just to be able to get inside the head of this man but he didn't quite go that far but he utterly committed to the role now train spotting was already in existence not just as a book but also as a stage play with some success as well and realizing the role of Renton on the stage had been the actor Ewan Bremner and in this instance he was persuaded to take on the role of Spud in the movie, a smaller role but no less pivotal. Other bits of casting, well Christopher Eccleston had been a part of the Shallow Grave ensemble and he was one of those who was in the running for the role of Begbie but in the end Boyle it veered towards the idea of casting Robert Carlyle in that part. Johnny Lee Miller, well, he walked into an audition and they pretty much felt that they had their man there fairly quickly. Likewise, Kevin McKidd, fairly swift piece of casting. The hardest role to cast in this one in the end was that of Diane. So what they did was that they basically searched Glasgow to find an actor to take that role on, that they were handing out flyers left, right and centre. And Kelly MacDonald would reflect that she found one of these flyers, came along for an audition. She'd never, she'd never appeared on screen. She'd not uh, landed an acting role before um, but she did enough here to completely land the role and she's one of I mean as the stereotype story goes she was one of the last people they saw certainly this was the last key role in the movie that was cast 
By May 1995 then, as the cast coming together, the money was in place, the green light firmly given, the, strip, the script conversations here were centred on how to end the movie, that John Hodge would continue to wrestle with just how to adapt train spotting for the screen. Now, Danny Boyle is a director who doesn't use multiple writers. Again, I've talked to him about this in the past, where unlike other directors, he doesn't bring on another writer to give a film a polish or bring in someone else to take on the work that someone else has started doing he stuck very firmly with Hodge and that was always the plan Hodge was struggling with the ending I mean they were all struggling with just which ending to go with in the end and in the end they settled on the one that we do ultimately get in the movie so with that in place the rehearsals for the film could get underway now, Train Spotting is a story and ultimately a film that's primarily set in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, but also it's primarily a film that did not shoot in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland. That the production if it was primarily based in Glasgow to the point where that's where the production office sat as well, that they rented a flat high up in a tower block in Glasgow, which is where rehearsals got underway. Most of the actors came in for rehearsals, not all. There were a couple of actors who were only coming in for a couple of days on the film but for the the core leads of the film those rehearsals were crucial Danny Boyle was again working primarily with the Shallow Grave crew on this one there were a couple of exteriors that were going to be quite tricky at one stage in the movie there is uh, let's just say a, a tea leafing that takes place in the newsagent John Menzies those of us of a certain age might remember John Menzies on the high street they John Menzies was not the first choice for that store but other stores were reticent to be used for a film when they took a look at the screenplay for it. This was clearly, I mean, it was it was known even in the build-up, this was clearly going to be a controversial film, that the way that it dealt with drugs and addiction and the characters around that was, well, it was going to push a, a lot of buttons with certain elements of the press and, as it turned out, in American politics as well. But the film was still coming together. It had this, this absolute momentum by the success of Shallow Grave and it being the next film from the people who made Shallow Grave. It's important to contextualise, I think, that this was not the... I mean, Shallow Grave alone was not the kind of film that Britain was making. That by it, that the early 1990s, it was still primarily period dramas. That Four Weddings and a Funeral as well had broken through, so we were allowed to kind of have a foppish rom-com and that succeed. But for such a, a films of such energy and anger to come out of the system and also to be hit well that felt like an enormous breath of fresh air the build-up to filming was continuing meanwhile and Ewan McGregor I mean as well as reading several books on crack and heroin addiction worked with a group who Danny Ball had recruited to be consultants for the movie the Calton Athletic Recovery Group and McGregor worked with them and also some of his co-stars went in as well that the Calton team uh, put on cookery classes so that they could work out how to realistically depict the use and the cooking of drugs on the big screen they used glucose powder instead of actual drugs uh, but McGregor again throwing himself into the research of this and making sure that he got it all right and it got to the point where again fairly quickly I've covered some films on this podcast that take years and years and years and years to get to the start of production Train Spotting was filming in May of 1995 and John Hodge was working on the script six months earlier Shallow Grave hadn't even come out at that point there were some locations that were particularly tricky to land, not least the John Menzies one. Uh, Kate, uh, Kate Quinn, the production designer, was drawing influence from the states of Glasgow with her production design. 
but they needed they needed to find a courtroom they needed to find a crematorium and again when people were reading the script they were put off helping the film furthermore the very tight production uh, schedule of the movie had to factor in three and a half days of shooting in London and a bit of exterior work in Edinburgh as well and as Danny Boyle would reflect to Entertainment Weekly said resources were low and so they got particularly resourceful with the idea of how they're doing how to shoot the film and as the article explains unable to pay for the magic of morphing Boyle created train spotting surreal sequences with nothing but Victorian theatre tricks this was not a film with a special effects budget that things could be fixed in post instead this was a film where if you were going to put things like sinking into the floor or descending into a toilet you did it you did it in camera you found the tools by which to do so and so let's look at that scene and i got a famous scene from the movie yuck where renton uh, basically goes into a toilet that's smeared with not very nice things and so that was a case was they found a toilet and they covered it with chocolate mousse and lots of lumpy chocolate mousse as well and yuck 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 there's a moment in the film too going spoiler light where one of the characters has an overdose and has to kind of sink into the floor and again small victorian theater tricks they put a trap door in the floor they built a platform above it and lowered the character down into that on camera it looked like a perfect effect but actually they'd done it the most basic and straightforward yet ingenious way they could do there was a moment where a dog needed to jump up and down as if it had just been hit uh there's i played you a clip of that sequence right at the start they they screamed at the dog i don't think they'd quite get that through uh animal welfare now but you know th that's the way that they were doing stuff and as ewan mcgregor said because we had no money for the film uh all these effects are really thrown together with absolutely no technology whatsoever the tightness of the shooting schedule as well and, and led to Danny Boyle working on the edge of his wits, really, that there are a couple of shots in the movie where he just did one take that he didn't do as, as his standard, a safety take as a backup in the editing suite. And as Boyle explained, he just says, if you think it's for safety, you don't really do it very well anyway. And that safety really is not a good word to spur you on. Now, the physicality of the shoot also manifested itself with, uh, let's just say, the moments were around the character of Begbie, played by Robert Carlyle. Not a man I particularly want to get into a conversation with. That's Begbie rather than Carlyle. There's a moment where a rusty pocket knife is, is just basically uh, slammed between Ewan McGregor's legs. And they did it. I mean, again, like most things in the film, that they did some version of it for real. As McGregor said, we had to be very careful. And he said that as long as he kept his arms straight, there'd be no danger of it going into my nuts. So that's nice and refreshing as well. For Kelly MacDonald, this was her first film and she would admit in a retrospective article to Vice that I mentioned before that she was hung over her first day of filming, that she was uh, inexperienced and she was just... Uh, the, the atmosphere around the film was such that she went and uh, had a couple of drinks and wasn't in the best of states for her first shoots. As Danny Ball also would reveal to Amy Raphael in the excellent book of interviews between the pair, uh, Gio McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller weren't the best for wear either. 
either when they shot the aforementioned James Bond stroke uh, dog sequence that, again, I played you a clip of right at the start. In all, the shoot of train spotting went on for 35 days. That was it. That was your lot. In those 35 days, they covered over 50 different locations. They worked from a production office just on the outskirts of Glasgow as well. I think it was an old cigarette factory that they used. Editing was going on throughout production as well by Masahiro Hirakabu. And the film was being assembled with quite a tight post-production phase to the movie. Because as filming was wrapping, I mean, they shot a special teaser, the teaser trailer, even while they were filming. And that was re readied and released in July of 1995, just as production of the movie was wrapping up. But also around this time, crucially, Polygram picked up the UK distribution rights for the movie. They also distributed the film in many territories around the world as well. And Polygram went for a February 1996 release. Now, it could theoretically have released the film a little bit earlier, but it knew that it needed a marketing campaign and a half to sell Trainspotting. It knew this was going to be a hot potato of a movie, uh, especially so when a, a rough cut of the film was put together by September. But that in itself was w w it took quite a lot of work to get to because they were adamant they needed this, to, the filmmakers were adamant, they needed this to be trimmed down to 90 minutes. And they got to the they got to their target by the end of autumn 1995, although the music clearance would continue to be tricky for some time. There was a little bit of concern that the release date that Polygram had earmarked for the movie, 23rd of February 1996, was going to put it into stiff competition with a couple of big hitting movies. That that was earmarked as the UK release date for Martin Scorsese's new film Casino, the Ang Lee's film of Sense and Sensibility, starring and adapted by Emma Thompson. Was set to be out around the same time. That was seen as a more traditional British movie as well. But also, there was the question of was train spotting going to be any good? And over to Irvin Welsh again talking to Vice, and he said at the point where the film was finally in a presentable state, they booked a screening room in Soho. So I brought along people who really loved the book and would be very, very critical of the film if it wasn't any good. And so Welsh would say, I brought along Bobby Gillespie and Andrew Innes from Primal Scream, Jeff Barrett from heavenly records people who were friends who were really into the book people who would say if it was <coughs> not very good if it didn't capture the spirit of it and so welsh would describe that screening he said i was watching them more than i was the screen to be honest and there are a few comments like is that meant to be begbie is that meant to be sick boy and then it just stopped and he's described as he described it once the characters were embedded in their heads it took over and they were transfixed the film, the, the film screening went down like an absolute storm. Ewan McGregor too would talk about watching the film for the first time and how blown away he was by it. And so Welsh, not least with his extensive music contacts, would help in landing the music that the filmmakers wanted for Train Spotting. And this was looking more and more like it, it was it had the momentum behind it that this was going to be really something. What really helped launch it into the stratosphere was a marketing campaign and a half. I mean, there was a full trailer that was released that certainly, again, piqued the interest of many, many people. But it was the billboards, an iconic poster with the five characters in strips and the train spotting name running alongside them, that the characters got individual posters as well. It wasn't quite as regular a thing then as it, it's become now. And the billboards across London started appearing in January 1996. So first, just at a 
handful of train stations. Now, against this backdrop, there was buzz around the movie and Danny Boyle was getting more and more interest from Hollywood. And it was around this time he was said to have been offered Alien 4 as a project to take on. He would ultimately turn that film down. It would be taken on by Jean-Pierre Jeannot and become Alien Resurrection. In the meantime, though, the build-up and, and the hype around train spotting was growing. The marketing campaign continued to expand and the film got before critics and I mean, it just, again, it just exploded. Inevitably, given the material within the movie, not every critic went for it, but so many of them did, praising the momentum, praising the speed of it, praising just the absolute energy of it. And the fact that a film about such a, a difficult subject had come out so wildly entertaining and so, uh, and so effective... It would be fair to say, too, that the film absolutely exploded again at the UK box office, that this modestly costed production in the end worldwide would take nearly £50 million, over $70 million. Uh, it would sell an enormous amount on video as well and, and consequently DVD and continues to enjoy anniversary screenings as and when they come round too. What was trickier was the American release of the film, that even, though the, even as the film was dominating the UK box office, there were difficulties over just how to sell the film in the US that Miramax had picked up the film for the American market then headed up by now convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein it was releasing the film in the summer of 1996 and there were stories going round that for the American release of the movie and Boyle addresses this in the interview one of his interviews with Amy Raphael that a subtitled version was being put into cinemas now Boyle tells that he never saw one of these and when he was doing the press tour in New York and Los Angeles there was no evidence of such I think he said that it was Johnny Lee Miller who caught one of these screenings in other areas around the US and it was a hit uh, at the US box office by a much smaller scale. It did about $16 million in the US in the end, but then Miramax did counter-program it against films like Independence Day and The Rock and Mission Impossible. Those were the films that were around at the time. It was released, what, it was July the 19th? I think it was 1996. It came out in the end in America and it did decent business, but also it got it continued to get momentum in one or two ways. Firstly, it offended politicians that Bob Dole at that stage was running to be uh, the president of the US. It was an election year in the US. It was Bill Clinton versus Bob Dole. Uh, Bob Dole was the Republican nominee and he was accusing the film. He used the film in his campaign talking about how it used the glory, how it glamorised drug taking and how it glorified it and how it was morally depraved. And it was Andrew McDonald in the end who responded to those claims. He talked to the BBC, gave an interview and he, he explained that they were determined to show why people took drugs. And he said you had to show that it was fun and that it was awful. And Danny Ball backed him up on this. The film, in spite of it being used as a political football, though, did interest the Academy, the Academy Awards the following year. A real surprise, this, that even though it appeared on quite a few top 10 lists from uh, very, very well-known outlets, the fact that it, it got 
enough of an audience and enough eyeballs to get an, an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay that year was really quite the surprise. That said, Danny Ball would argue it was the Best Adapted Screenplay of that year. And certainly set against the other nominees, I mean, he's got a bit of an argument there. Kenneth Branagh was nominated for Adapted Screenplay that year for Hamlet. And this was the film where he basically took the text from the play and filmed that. I'm appreciating there's a little bit more to it. Um, uh, the adaptation of The Crucible by Arthur Miller was nominated. Anthony Minghella's film of The English Patient was nominated. The one that won, though, was Billy Bob Thornton for uh, his screenplay to the film Sling Blade, which was based on a short film. Some folks call it a Sling Blade, which had also been written by Thornton. That was the one that prevailed. Uh, Danny Ball, talking to Amy Raphael, argued that John Hodge's adaptation of Train Spotting was, was just an incredible piece of work and a much tougher piece of work, too. It's quite hard to disagree with that, I'd suggest. Train spotting very quickly, it's worth noting, became a phenomenon. It was a huge phenomenon, particularly in the UK, not just in the UK as well. But in this case, it was a, a one where its legacy also has lived on as well. The anniversary screenings, the popularity of the film never seems to wane, really. And as Andrew MacDonald would, would explain, he said, people criticise this film because it dares to show the truth, that people take drugs because they're pleasurable. But we also show that if you take too much of, a, of them, there's a serious chance they'll all... Uh, mess you up. I think that's what he says. And as Boyle would reason, the heads of British industry are saying to you, this is not the right kind of film to make because you might be encouraging people to try it. That's just silly. And Trainspotting was absolutely not the film coming out of the British film industry. It's barely come out of the British film industry since. But nonetheless, there was talk fairly quickly of doing some kind of follow-up to this. Um, in particular over time, it was Irving Welsh's book Porno that just seemed to be the logical way to take this story forward on the big screen. But the core creative, uh, the core creatives on this one, McDonald, Boyle, Hodge and McGregor would move to America and tackle a film called A Life Less Ordinary, which I will come to in a future episode of the podcast. But any plan for a train spotting sequel was derailed for an awful long time by their next project, the adaptation of The Beach, which I have covered before, which would lead to Boyle and Ewan McGregor falling out and the sequel to train spotting not coming along until 2006. 17, which is, what, some 20-odd years and change after the release of the original movie. That's how long the, the, the there was ice between Boyle and McGregor. And it took that to Thor, really, for them to revisit it and try something that would attempt to measure up to the original movie. I will come again to that sequel in a future episode of the podcast. For now, Train Spotting is one of those films that is a standout British cinema classic, continues to be so, and its influence, I would argue, continues to be felt to this day. That's not bad for a £1.5 film that shot in 35 days. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Which brings me to the midway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. So I'm going to do a couple of parish notices as quick as I can. Um, first and foremost, if you like this podcast and would like to support it, thank you uh, on all counts, really. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash Simon Brew, you can support the podcast financially. Uh, in exchange for that, you get uh, you get early access to podcast episodes. You find out the news of what we're up to at the moment. There is quite a lot happening at the moment as well. Um, also, the money that comes in through Patreon is part used to fund bringing new writers in and giving them a shot at getting paid work too. So thank you to everyone who backs me there. If you could uh, subscribe to this podcast, that helps enormously and doesn't cost you a penny. If you could leave ideally a hugely positive review for independent podcasts like this, this is absolute gold dust and I can't thank you enough for it. Um, I also want to give notice that I've got two live shows coming up. On June the 23rd, 2022, I'm doing my first Movie Geek live show in London. Tickets for that are at filmstories.co.uk. And then on July the 13th, 2022, I'm back in the West Midlands in England at Birmingham's Midlands Arts Centre. It's the same web address to find details of tickets there. But without further ado, enough parish notices. I'm going to move on to the second of the two films I'm talking about in this episode of Film Stories. At the point this episode is being recorded, Top Gun Maverick is soaring high at the top of the box office. And that's a perfect time, I'd suggest, to revisit a film, a sort of Top Gun sequel from 1990. Let me play you a clip and I'll come to the story, the other side of this. Don't you think we ought to talk? What, about how I'm going to run? Sure. About how you've managed to live as long as you have. Think he can drive? Oh, he can drive. He can drive beyond the limits of the tires, the engine, the car, anything else. There's nothing I can't do with a race car. Well, that's the difference between you and me. There's only so much I can do. You want me to work the pit and you drive? You run good? Thank you. I will see how you do in a crowd. I was desperate to get your attention. Well, you got it. I've walked into a jungle. Come up here and do it. I'll take you to a race. Really, I can't. I'm a doctor. I'm cool. That is a clip from the trailer for 1990's Days of Thunder, directed by Tony Scott, screenplay credited to Robert Town with a story by Town and Tom Cruise, starring Tom Cruise, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid, Nicole Kidman, Carrie Elwes and Michael Rooker, and going under the tagline in some quarters of Cruise Like Thunder. They did actually do that. Incredible. And so this was a reunion of the Top Gun team, but actually the start of Days of Thunder was, you could tie it back to Martin Scorsese's 
1986 film The Colour of Money, the belated sequel to The Hustler starring Paul Newman. And Tom Cruise was cast opposite Newman in that film and got to spend serious time with his co-star. Now, Paul Newman was a renowned petrol head, a racing car fanatic, uh, a NASCAR enthusiast. And so he invited Cruise, who then had finished filming Top Gun, it was on the eve of release, to Daytona Manor Speedway and gave him the chance to try racing a stock car around the track. And Cruise was very quickly beguiled by this. He was introduced to NASCAR team owner Rick Hendrick and he loved the racing and he began to think straight away, there's a movie in this. It planted the seed of an idea. And when Top Gun went nuts at the box office later that year, there was instantly talk of a Top Gun 2, as there would be. But Cruise ultimately had something else in mind that ever since he'd visited that NASCAR track in January of 1986, he thought more and more there must be a movie in this. Now, a few months after that initial meeting, Cruz and Hendrick went off for a dinner and he, along with others who were attending the dinner, told the actor stories of NASCAR life, of what it was like. And Cruz was more and more wanting to do this as a film. And so it got to later in 1986 and he was in contact with Paramount Pictures about possibly doing this as a movie with the studio. And so Paramount was very much keen to be in the Tom Cruise business. It had just made Top Gun with him. Top Gun was going nuts. But he was, the studio wasn't over enamoured with the core story that Cruz explained to them, that Cruz had come up with ideas of what this could be. But still, even though the studio wasn't massively keen on the story, it was very keen on the star. And so Cruz was committed to doing films Rain Man and Born on the Fourth of July at that stage. But Paramount agreed to get involved if a decent script could be knocked together. And so initially writers such as Donald Stewart and Warren Scarra, and Scarra had done a lot of work on Top Gun, were hired to take a go at the screenplay. Eventually the mantle would pass to Robert Town, the renowned writer of Chinatown. More on him shortly. Cruise and Paramount would also, as it became more and more likely this was becoming a film, turn to the producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. And Paramount had worked with Top Gun on them. They'd done Flashdance for the studio as well. And with Simpson and Bruckheimer on board, that's when thing could, yep, begin motoring. Yet before the film could take too many more steps forward, there was the small issue of getting the blessing of NASCAR, of the racing giants, because this was a film that was going to be set in and around the world of NASCAR. It needed NASCAR tracks. It needed NASCAR insignia. It needed NASCAR cars. And the head of NASCAR at this time, a man called Bill France Jr., hadn't at this stage given the film his blessing. And without that, they couldn't do it. And as the Daily Press reported at the time in the US, by all accounts, NASCAR's boss man was non-committal until Don Simpson said he wanted to change the public's perception of motorsports by portraying NASCAR as the high-tech professional sport it really is. Bill France Jr. duly gave the project the tick and pre-production could begin. Now, you might have noticed I've not really talked too much about the putting together of the script of this one. And oftentimes when I'm discussing films on, on this podcast, the, the writing of the screenplay and the rewrites and all of that takes months, years, an awful long time. In this case, uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer were just keen to get the film going. That At the point NASCAR signed off on it in the summer of 1989, they could get going on pre-production of the movie, on securing the racetracks that they need to shoot on, of trying to get together what the 60-odd cars that they were going to need. 
At this stage, the film was going under the title Riders of the Storm, but that was a title that would require them to get clearance from the Jim Morrison estate and the doors to be able to use. That clearance did not come through. As such, the codename then switched to Daytona, and eventually the film would go by the name Days of Thunder, with Tom Cruise always going to take the lead as the wonderfully named Cole Trickle. That is indeed, if you've not had the pleasure of the film, the name of his character in this film, Cole Trickle. Let's just take a second to think about that. The female lead role, effectively taking on the Kelly McGuinness role from Top Gun, originally went to the actor Laura San Giacomo, but for reasons unknown, she would drop out of the project. Nicole Kidman would get her first big blockbuster role, which would put her into the circle of Tom Cruise for the first time. They would, of course, go on to marry, make several films together. But it was her performance in the 1989 thriller Dead Calm, and what a film that is, that had put her on the radar of Days of Thunder. It was said to be Robert Town who spotted her in that and recommended her for the film and so this was all coming together the missing part of the uh, Top Gun team for this was director Tony Scott but by this stage he too had been lured back to direct He'd been working on a film called Revenge starring Kevin Costner and he was aware with all the meddling that was going on behind the scenes with that movie that Revenge was not going to come out as the film he thought he was going to make. He wasn't particularly happy with it and thus he signed up to Days of Thunder figuring this was going to be a more straightforward commercial project, a, a rerun of sorts of Top Gun uh, and to a degree he was right. Um, the comedian Rich Hall actually does a brilliant breakdown of how some of Tom Cruise's roles were going at the time and he does point out it's on youtube if you want to search out and the similarities between the plot structure and top gun of days of thunder are absolutely notable let's just say that i don't want to spoil the film short of to say if you've seen one you roughly know where the other one's going to go as well Still, Scott, Bruckheimer and Town picked up where Cruz had left off by researching NASCAR circuits and Town now was firmly the, the key screenwriter on this. He was putting his draft together, but it was a long way from finished. At the point, Simpson and Bruckheimer decided we're just going for it. Even though they didn't have what was considered to be a workable draft of the screenplay, they decided to press ahead and get this ready for the summer of 1990. They saw a window of opportunity for this film and they were determined to take it. And so against this backdrop, the rest of the casting came together. Michael Rooker, for instance, was amongst those who got a Hollywood leg up off the back of this picture. You could spot a young John C. Riley in the ensemble as well. Robert Duval was a particularly key piece of casting. But still, even as it went forward, the film got its green light and by the end of 1989, it was going to be shooting. As a Variety report would quote a Paramount executive uh, saying, we knew the script wasn't ready, but we needed a movie for Memorial Day 1990. We needed to work off this tremendous overhead. We were paying Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. We had a window of availability on Tom Cruise. Suddenly, we all felt more fondly about the script. Paramount thus uh, signed a $35 million budget to the movie. The plan was have it in cinemas in May of 1990 in time for Memorial Day. And so it was very much full steam ahead. On 11th of December 1989, just six months before the planned release date, one of the most infamous shoots of the 1990s got underway. 
Now, the excesses of producer Don Simpson have been heavily detailed in the book High Concept, written by Charles Fleming. But in particular, Fleming notes it was the set of Days of Thunder where things were said to come to a head, that Simpson's well-charted drugs abuse was uh, was at its peak, really. And also his ego was, was matching it. Simpson, for instance, wanted to be an actor. He fancied taking on a key role in this particular movie and wanted that role written in as well. But also Simpson, Bruckheimer, sometimes Robert Town as well, uh, and director Tony Scott too, they were soon at loggerheads over how to shoot certain scenes. Scott was very, in, as, as, as he would concede in one or two interviews, he was, he was very much, we're going to do it my way. This was quite a testosterone and ego heavy shoot, and you had a meeting of minds who all thought they knew the best way to do it. And thus, while Scott, Simpson, Bruckheimer, and sometimes Robert Town were arguing, a lot of the time the crew was sat around getting paid for doing nothing, waiting for them to resolve everything. Sometimes it was said the crew, and this is in Charles Fleming's book, would sit around for 20 hours a day. And, and as one crew member would note in the aftermath of production, they made so much overtime on the film, they could have gone on holiday for a full four months after the film was supposed to have wrapped up. The shooting days were long. The budget would soon balloon. It didn't help that filming was going around different racetracks in the US and thus you go to different parts of the country, you're going to get different weather conditions and continuity thus became a problem. The schedule was squeezed and pressed even further. And against this backdrop, Robert Tan was still writing the script. It got to the point where he was writing scenes overnight that were going to be shot the following day. This did not please Tom Cruise. Now, Cruise's star had risen still further. He'd had the commercial acclaim of Born on the Fourth of July and Rain Man as well to go with the box office of Top Gun. And he had growing clout and just wasn't happy with how a pet project of his was moving forward. Go to that role that Don Simpson was said to be playing. Aldo Benedetti is the character he plays in the film. He had a four-page scene at one point, but it very quickly became apparent to all and sundry he was struggling to act. And that sequence in the movie, it's in there, but it is cut right, right down. Tony Scott and Robert Tan weren't getting on too well. Jerry, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson were getting very hands-on. And according to Spy magazine, they'd had a private gym built for them at the hotel they were staying at. And this was a magnet for parties, that there was little shyness about the fact there was a Tom Cruise movie in town. They were absolutely loud and proud about this. And it meant at the end of shooting, there were loud, loud parties. There was lots of drinking. There were lots of drugs. There was lots of nookies as well. And against this, the film was struggling. I mean, Cruz at certain points would be reading the new lines because they got to him too late on the dashboard of his stock car um, until one day reading those lines caused him to crash the car. And so after that, Cruz had a headset and at times Robert Town was dictating the lines to him through the headset. They were coming in that late. This was a film for which, I can't reiterate this enough, for which there was reportedly never a finished script. At no point was the screenplay completed. Meanwhile, the scheduling at times was changing two to three times a day. 
Now, Cruz is worth noting. I mean, fully committed as always, but he wasn't able to do all the driving on this one. In fact, he was working with a real NASCAR driver called Greg Sachs, who took over and did some doubling work for Cruz on this. The reason was that they weren't able to insure him. And so, again, let's look at Top Gun Maverick that's just come out, where Cruz is in a fighter plane, going, performing insane stunts and going at lightning speeds. At that stage, Cruz was had the clout to say this I'm doing this myself or the film's not happening. He wasn't quite at that point with Days of Thunder. You can imagine if the film was made now, he would insist on doing every bit of the driving in the film. The one constant, though, was the action in the movie that as difficult as the production of the film clearly was, it was clear that Tony Scott was capturing some spectacular race footage. They knew that the sequences they were getting were impressive. They were shooting a lot of footage. Scott used a lot of cameras to capture the race footage. It was a very physical shoot. Dozens of cars were wrecked during the production. I mean, it was said that only two of them survived intact at the end of filming and then the parties just kept coming. They were reportedly wild. I mean, I wasn't invited to them. They were going on into the night and then the crew would turn up the following day for work and, and just the whole process would start again. Against this, the film's schedule was pushing, the end date was moving later and later and later, and Paramount had no choice but to bump that release date. If you remember, it was originally set, set to be released at the end of May 1990. The film finished shooting in early May 1990. It had originally supposed to have finished filming at the end of February. It was running months late, even as the marketing for the film was ramping up. And at the point the last shot was captured, in the can, there was less than two months until the release date and reportedly some 240 hours of footage that needed to be trimmed down. More than that as well, there was no ending. And so we move into post-production and as much as there was a team of editors working around the clock to get this film into shape, and it was a team of editors as well, they did, to be fair, get it down to under two hours in under six weeks, there were still test screenings that were bearing out the fact there was no finale to it. As Variety reported, Don Simpson had suspicions that the film didn't hang together and the initial cut didn't even have Tom Cruise reaching a checkered flag. And so, Steve uh, Sig Gunnis was the co-president of Paramount at the time and he said there was almost no story and there was no ending it was just cars going round a racetrack the, the test screenings they did absolutely doubled down that this was a problem. And so in that six-week period, they had to get reshoots in as well. Tony Scott wasn't keen on doing the reshoots, but the finale had to be redone and new scenes were shot uh, that also included what happened to Tom Cruise's character in the aftermath of the, uh, of the racing as well. It's worth noting that Scott might not have been happy with having to do the reshoots on the movie, but he still did direct them himself. Um, it was in April 1990, I should note that uh, that Paramount announced the change of release date and it did bump twice actually it moved first to the 8th of June 1990 and then to the 27th of June 1990 and so we just I mean they took this to the absolute wire but they got the film completed. It was going to still be released in a high, at a high summer release slot, June the 27th, 1990. The ingredients were there for a hit. One of the biggest movie stars in the world, the director of Top Gun. It was a film that was going to replay the Top Gun formula, which had already proven to be commercial gold. And so, as much as it had been a nightmare, an absolute nightmare to get to this point, there was a feeling that there should be a hit here. Now, there was also a rivalry that was brewing as 
well between do producer Don Simpson and the head of Disney at the time, uh, Disney's live action films, Jeffrey Katzenberg, because Katzenberg had thrown lots of Disney's resources into the Warren Beatty adaptation of the comic book Dick Tracy. And that was opening 12 days before Days of Thunder. And so, th I mean, it played out in the Hollywood press that Don Simpson faxed Jeffrey Katzenberg with a note saying you can't escape the thunder. And Katzenberg sent a fax in return saying you won't believe how big my dick is. I mean, never let it be said that boys and toys should be separated, right? And so nothing really came out of the confrontation short of the fax wars added column inches to, and, and discussion of the two films uh, that were already receiving, in fairness, heavy coverage. But also they were two films that would fall below expectations to certain degrees. So Days of Thunder did get in front of critics and critics were not particularly impressed. I mean, the kindest suggested that this was just a, a, a by the numbers, really movie star vehicle that reran stuff that we'd seen before, uh, that the stock car racing came in for praise. But the film itself just said to be pretty much going round in circles. I mean, a fairly obvious gag and critics did not resist that, nor would I. Still, this wasn't a film for critics, right? And so it landed in US cinemas at the end of June 1990. Cruise like thunder, the trailers were roaring and it opened in number one spot. But the film had, that had started off with a $35 million production budget had that budget and nearly doubled to $60 million off the back of the parties, off the back of the excess, off the back of the schedule, just elongating and elongating and elongating. And so the opening weekend of $15.4 million was something of a disappointment. The yardstick that the films of summer 1990 were being judged against was Batman the following year, which had been the first movie to open with a, a $40 million plus opening weekend. Now, already Disney's Dick Tracy had failed to reach this, but other films that summer were struggling as well. That Robocop 2 had opened the week before and that hadn't done the numbers that were hoped for. Total Recall was doing decent business in fourth place. That had been around for a month at this point. Another 48 hours had come out a month earlier from Paramount. That was just lingering in the charts, but not doing too well. And I mean, scandalously, Gremlins 2, the new batch, was also failing to find an audience. So on the one hand, the fact that Days of Thunder found $15.5 million in its opening weekend wasn't bad, but also it was half, really, what they were looking for. The only other big opener that weekend was the comedy movie Ghost Dad, starring Bill Cosby, so we'd best move on there. Uh, Days of Thunder hung around, uh, I mean, hung around for a while at the box office, but Die Hard 2 came out the week after, and that grossed $21 million on its opening weekend. And at the very least, that was the kind of number that Days of Thunder should have been aiming at. But the summer of 1990, was then absolutely seized by the release of Ghost a couple of weeks later, which was the sleeper hit of the season and would go on to make the kind of money that Days of Thunder came nowhere near. In the end, in the US, the film fell far short of Top Gun numbers, 82 million in the US. It did just shy of that elsewhere around the world, came in with a total box office gross of $157.9 million. The video games didn't particularly sell either. The video release in the end did OK, but still the general feeling was the film had been a massive disappointment. 
to the point where it marked the end of the long-standing relationship between Paramount Pictures, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer that uh, Paramount just didn't trust the pair uh, in the aftermath of Days of Thunder, that they were planning to make Beverly Hills Cop 3 at that point and Simpson and Bruckheimer were asked to give some of, them, some of their fee from Days of Thunder back to help uh, offset the losses from the movie. Uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer told Paramount that they could stick that, terminated the contract. They went instead and did a deal with Disney's Hollywood Studios. That said, it would be Jerry Bruckheimer who would primarily take the lead with that. Films like Dangerous Minds and The Rock would start getting underway there. But Don Simpson's excesses were continuing and his addictions were continuing and he would die well before his time in the mid-1990s as a result of an overdose. And it'd be Bruckheimer who would be steering the projects forward and continues to enjoy a relationship with Disney and now back at Paramount 2 with Top Gun Maverick. But Days of Thunder did an awful lot of damage to the relationship for an awful lot of time. Now, it's worth noting, too, there has been some degree of reappraisal of Days of Thunder in more recent times. Certainly, we lost Tony Scott about 10 years ago now. And this was said, I mean, this was argued to have been a turning point in his career at this stage. Certainly, he would make arguably his best run of films in the aftermath of this one. But Days of Thunder 2 has continued, actually, to be a catalogue seller for Paramount as well. It's one of the films it's selected to get a 4K upgrade that came out a year or two ago as well. But also... Whilst there's a lot of fervour around Top Gun, certainly at the time that this is being recorded, there's barely anyone out there who's ever gone out on a limb to suggest a Days of Thunder 2. Instead, the lessons of it, certainly the ramifications of it, were felt by Paramount for some time. Paramount would duck back from blockbuster culture and would target more mid-range movies for most of the 1990s. Tom Cruise would re would reignite his relationship with them with the Mission Impossible films, of course. But that whole summer of 1990 had a, a bunch of movies that had been expected to hit big that for various reasons underperformed. That Back to the Future Part 3 was in there. That Gremlins 2 was in there. That Dick Tracy was in there. And then perhaps the loudest of the lot was Days of Thunder. A bit of an empty vessel of a movie, I would suggest. A bit of a rerun of Top Gun, but one hell of a story. Of how it came to the screen. Which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. Thank you so much for enduring it and for putting up with me. And if I've not completely bored you, you can find more of my waffling and wittering over at Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project there at Film Stories Pod uh, or on Facebook too, facebook.com slash Film Stories Online, youtube.com slash Film Stories. If you go to our website, filmstories.co.uk, that's updated every weekday with movie news, reviews, features, all sorts of things going on there. We try and be as clickbait free as we can. And then if you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, you can find our print magazine. So we've done 33 issues of Film Stories. I'm just signing off issue 34 at the moment. And then nine issues of Film Junior magazine and issue 10 of that is now in production as well. You can buy back copies of virtually all of them at store.filmstories.co.uk. For now, though, I'm going to leave you in peace. I'm going to thank you, as always, for your time, your ears and your support. I wish you the best and I'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories. Until then, you will look after yourselves. Bye bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. 
Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.